before we get going, here's the bit where I remind you that nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets. You're about to listen to a special preview edition of the Grant Williams podcast featuring my returning guest, uh, David Dorr of Dorr Asset Management. David came in uh, last year, I guess actually around 18 months ago, and we had a fascinating conversation around uh, Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies and blockchain technology, which I just found to be uh, incredibly insightful. Um, And uh, hopefully a lot of you felt the same way too. Every episode of the Grant Williams podcast, including The Endgame, The Super Terrific Happy Hour, The Narrative Game, This Week in Doom, and Shifts Happen, is available to copper and silver tier subscribers at my website, grant-williams.com. Copper tier subscribers get access to all the podcasts, while members of the silver tier get both the podcasts and my monthly newsletter, Things That Make You Go. Hmm. So, if you enjoy what you hear on the show, and you want more high-quality content like it, then please make your way over to grant-williams.com and join our exciting community today. And now, on with the show. David, welcome back to the podcast. I cannot believe it's been almost 18 months since you and I last had a conversation. It's amazing. Time flies. I think we're in a, in a time warp as, as everybody tries to readjust from suspended animation of being stuck in, in COVID, right? Yeah, ain't that the truth? Yeah, we were all still pretty much locked down when, when you and I last spoke, which is kind of just coming out of it. And, and look, you know, the, the, the world's readjusting to something new every day, it seems. And um, I, was, I was so keen to have you on to talk about another readjustment that the world's having to make, and that is the kind of post-FTX readjustment that everyone's having to make to, to the crypto world. Because, you know, when you and I spoke, I, I absolutely loved that conversation because, you know, I found someone who was educated on the topic, was a proponent of the topic, but not a cheerleader and very happy to to criticize where criticism was due. And, you know, the, over the last 18 months between that conversation and today, I've just watched the polarization of the space just get worse and worse and worse. And, I, and I, to be honest, I've stayed largely out of it because I just can't find common ground to, to talk to people. And if you have any conversations and present them to an audience, the audience has pretty much made up their mind and they either cheer you if you take their side or boo you if you take the other side. And so it's very hard to, to find some nuanced conversation. And never has that been more true than the S, uh, SBF FTX debacle where you know the, the proponents will either tell you that it, it doesn't matter and this is neither here nor there and don't worry, Binance is fine, or they'll tell you this is the beginning of the end of crypto. So I thought, who do I want to speak to who can give me a much more balanced assessment of it. And here you are, my friend. So thanks for doing this. <laughs> well, thank you for having me again. I think I think healthy dialogue in, in complex subjects is is important. And there is some sort of middle ground between, you know, dancing on tombstones and, and declaring, you know, BTC is is the only asset for life. So, you know, hopefully through our dialogue today, we we can encourage others to, you know, see some of that that middle ground. Amen to that. Wouldn't that be great? Well listen, let's start with the FTX I think debacle is the right word. I can't think of one more appropriate, but I'm sure there is one out there. Uh, Let's talk about that. Let's talk about, from your perspective, you know, what happened and and perhaps why it might be important rather than than just picking over the bones of the who did what to who and when. Yeah, I think as a starting point, we should go back to the to the origins of FTX, which goes back to Alameda Research. 
And it really starts with Alameda Research's name. This is really not something to, to glaze over here because the famous kimchi trade, which is supposedly what, what Sam Bankman-Fried and his, you know, his colleagues um, armed for Bitcoin prices in South Korea, Japan, and, and, and elsewhere around the world, that required them to lie to banks and open bank accounts under false pretenses. And, and they even named themselves Alameda Research because they didn't feel the banks were going to open an account for them if they disclosed their actual activity. Right. And this is so this is so relevant because this helps this helps put context to everything that Sam has been doing since. And when we look at the the anatomy of a fraud, whether it's you know with modern novel assets like digital assets, or you know we go back to you know Ponzi schemes a hundred years ago, they all unpack pretty much identical. And so we need to, we don't want to give Sam the benefit of the doubt. He doesn't deserve it. He was committing crime from day one. And my personal belief is that this is just an extension of, you know, criminal activity that started from day one and then just got ever bigger until it imploded. You know, it's interesting because when something like this happens, you know, I remember the Nick Leeson thing very, very well. You know, I was out in Asia at the time and, and that was the opposite. That was something dumb that that became a gigantic fraud with someone clearly trying to get out of it. And the, and the paper trail was there. It was clear for all to see what had happened. And I, and I was fascinated to watch uh, SBF doing the rounds in the wake of this, all these, you know, interviews he was doing and the, oh, shucks, you know, I wasn't really meaning to do any of this. And, you know, I, I watched all that with a naturally cynical eye. And my conclusion was exactly what yours was, that this is all an act and there, there was... Because because the other alternative, as I saw it, was just a bunch of kids who had no clue what they were doing, right? Which is possible, but unlikely. Um, exactly. So, so 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 let's assume that 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 is the case, and this was a fraud from day one. How do Sequoia and how do Ontario teachers and how do Temasek? How do these guys get caught up in this? I, you know, I spoke to a, a friend of mine whose son is in the crypto space and went for a meeting with these guys and walked out after 10 minutes. This is a complete and utter joke. So how, how did they get past that? I think that's going to be fascinating to see when the, the lawsuits inevitably fly, you know, from the LPs as, as, as they should, because when you go to institutional funds, you expect world-class due diligence. And this, this guy failed even the most basic, basic, due diligence tests. I mean, nobody bothered to ask this guy what he was using for his financial systems. I mean, I come from FinTech. Like, that's, you know, these are these are the basics. If you and I were operating a, you know, a gelato stand, you know, and somebody wanted to invest, they'd be like, well, you know, how are you keeping track of, you know, the cash and, 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 and payments? You know, this is really, really basic stuff. And, and learning just recently that these guys were using QuickBooks, which by the way, is unusual in itself. Not only is that alarming and, and makes no sense, but that makes no sense from the beginning either. That 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 to me is a huge red flag. People are saying, "Oh, these guys are just so incompetent and and everything else." No, I I, I suspect something much more nefarious because you just wouldn't build out like that from day one because QuickBooks is, has zero capabilities to handle that type of exchange activity. And I think we're going to find out these guys were running some other types of systems. And there's been some allusions to, to doing exactly that. So how does a Sequoia, um, you know, miss something like that? 
it's mind boggling. There's zero excuse. I, I, I think that you're going to see, you know, I think they were, they had a, a serious case of FOMO. I think that the, the senior GPs were listening to the juniors and the juniors were excited about this new, you know, amazing asset class. Um, you may have seen, I believe it was on Sequoia's own site about, you know, them thinking that, you know, Sam Bankman Fried was going to be the first trillionaire. I mean, yeah. Yeah. I, I'm speechless. I don't even know what to say to that. Like, you know, you know, that says it all. Right. So I think, you know, you're going to see a lot of lawsuits with that and, and there should be, you know, pension funds shouldn't be losing money on, on, on transactions like that. No, not like that. You wouldn't think, well, let's talk about this as a fraud then. Uh, and let's talk about what kind of fraud it was and how fraud changes in the age of digital assets, because it, it seems to me that it does change things considerably. It does. And it's it's a bit paradoxical because on, on one side, the the ease of moving something, let's just call that something broadly a digital asset, moving and zipping that around the world from wallet to wallet, from country to country, from exchange to exchange, facilitates fraud in a tremendous way. The the flip side of that is the the paradox is that most of that movement occurs across blockchains which are fantastic for tracing the data. Right. So, you know, I, I've always told friends that are outside of finance, you know, when, when you're looking at criminal activity, you'd be better off murdering somebody with a better probability of getting away than committing a financial crime because financial <laughs> crimes always and forever, there's some type of record. Somewhere, somehow, there's always a record. And, and blockchain, ironically, is, is one of the most fascinating records that you can get. And a lot of these guys, you know, crypto Twitter's just been amazing. A lot of these, you know, forensic data firms are just publishing amazing stuff showing, you know, the flows. And I, I expect we're going to be seeing those in court filings here, you know, within the next month or two. Um, so, yeah, that's the that's the difference. It's easier, but it's also more traceable. But, but what's amazed me in the in the fallout is, as you say, there is some extraordinary forensic work going on by, look, largely amateur sleuths in, in many cases who are, who are just, but they have the availability of this incredible data set that, that allows them to trace things. And you kind of look at this stuff and, again, you know, my knowledge of the Bitcoin, my understanding of it is rudimentary compared to someone like yours. But I look at it and say, well, if it is as transparent as they say, and you get this stuff presented to you by people who are saying, well, here's the money moving. This is what's happened. This is where it's gone. This is. I struggle to find an argument against that. And if you can give me one, I'd love to hear it because it seems to me that, as you say, that the thing that crypto sets itself out as being its main advantage should ultimately make all this stuff so simple to prove that you just wonder what's left in the space now if there are so many frauds going on that are so easy to prove. Yeah. So here's here's part of the rub is that, and I, and I don't know if we touched on this on, on your last podcast, but even if we did, it's worth it's worth highlighting here, is that there's this there's this false idea in the way that volume for cryptocurrencies actually works. So when centralized exchanges emerged, which was the first type of, of exchanges for cryptocurrencies, what everybody was forgetting, and this is the irony here, is that. Centralized exchanges work exactly like any other type of exchange. So it's not transaction. Transaction volume on a centralized exchange, think of that as being recorded on an internal, let's call it Excel sheet, right? Since these guys weren't using any other types of advanced accounting. But it's not necessarily recorded on the blockchain itself. And this was one of our early critiques. We said, well, doesn't that kind of kill the narrative? If, if this is such an amazing asset class, 
you can move it between your crypto wallet and somebody else's, but everybody goes and stores in an omnibus account on a centralized exchange, which is what everybody's been doing, yeah. then then what the hell was the point? Like, you, you know, it, it doesn't make any sense. And so I think that that's where things get opaque very quick because you have these omnibus, let's call it wallets, and, and it takes a lot more sleuthing and data to get in there and see where the commingling of client funds took place um, and the other type of shenanigans that, that was going on. Um, and that appears to be exactly what's happening with FTX. The full conversation is available to subscribers to the copper and silver tiers of my website, grant-williams.com. Nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets.